0: Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're wrapping up this portion of Scripture. This ends a sermon of Jesus. And verses 25 through 33 will be our portion this morning. Jesus said in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of, figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. my recollection, this is the last exhortation Jesus gave to the disciples before he went to the cross. It's the last thing he spoke privately to them in exhortation and teaching. He's at the garden at some point, and we know he spoke to them, but he was not giving them a sermon or a teaching. He gave them simple instructions, pray with me. We know after that event that Peter, we'll, we'll read in chapter 18, is given instructions about what he's to do regarding his sword and his tendency to swing it everywhere. And so while not literally the last thing said to the Lord, and we know the Lord speaks to the Apostle John on the cross, yet still this seems to me to be the last sermon preached by Jesus to his apostles Before he went to the cross. And the last thing he said. Was take heart. I've overcome the world. The scripture speaks a lot about tribulation. And presents it in all of its variety and forms. The word tribulation can refer to hardship. In a general way. Just generally having a hard time or affliction. Or it can refer to specific forms of pressure and tension and affliction. You'll rightly realize this morning that affliction or tribulation is not unique to us as believers in Jesus. It's common to all men. All of life, according to the scriptures, is now subject to the curse and stain of sin. And ever since the fall of Adam, mankind has been subject to toil, trouble, pain, and physical difficulty. And the scriptures overarchingly teach us that this is the consequence of living in a fallen world, a sinful world. And, and as a result, everyone shares and has an equal share Of this kind of thing. Not equal share but in the sense that we all suffer. But we all share in it equally. The scripture says that there are various reasons for difficulty and tribulation. The scriptures speak that sometimes men experience the troubles of life to a greater degree. Because God is specifically punishing them and disciplining them for their rebellion against him. For example... Psalm 32, verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. If you set yourself to ignore and disobey God, if you set yourself to, be, to, to live your own way and to follow a course of wickedness, you may find yourself in a very difficult day. You will have many sorrows, the Scripture says. Why? Because God... God uses it as a punishment for your rebellion against Him. There are at least four types of tribulation the Old Testament speaks about, and four different kinds when it comes to physical trouble and toil. In Ezekiel 14.21, we have a a good illustration of this. God lists four different ways that He judges a people with tribulation. It says in Ezekiel 14.21 that God can send either acts... uh, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence to cut off from it from man and beast. So God can at times use warfare, famine, evil beast, and disease all as acts of judgment upon an earth that is walking in disobedience to his will and his ways. And these are the judgments of God on a sinful generation. Brothers and sisters, is it not apparent to us that as a result we can very clearly see our world is experiencing the hand of God's judgment? Difficulty and hardship and there is a lack of peace and a growing hostility in the earth and I cannot help but look at that and see God is rewarding us for our ways. We've, We've not walked according to the wisdom of God. We have denied Him and rejected His justice and righteousness in the earth. And as a result... God says, okay. But the scriptures would teach us, brothers and sisters, that tribulation is not just merely the act, God's acts of judgment in the earth. That like, likewise, even righteous men and pious men, good people, we might call them, can at times and in seasons experience tribulation. Even walking with the Lord is not a guarantee that you will not face difficulty. For example, Joseph was sold into slavery. Moses suffered affliction with the people of God. David was a refugee and an outcast for years. Israel, as God's chosen nation, was in bondage under Egypt, and was and even later, hated by all the nations around them. The Scriptures would show us, brothers and sisters, that being faithful to the Lord and righteous is no guarantee that you will avoid tribulation. The faithful of God's people must endure particular sufferings, and also sufferings because of our relationship to God. Now, the New Testament echoes this. And amplifies this and gives this a greater degree of clarity for us. The scriptures teach us in the New Testament that tribulation is the reward for everyone who disobeys God and his gospel. Romans 2.9 says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. God will judge every sinful person, every wicked person who disobeys him and does not follow in the law of his, in the his will in their life with tribulation. The Bible predicts and even in the last days there will be a great tribulation which will come upon all mankind for their rebellion against God. But likewise, brothers and sisters, the apostles teach us that not only the sinful and wicked of this earth will experience tribulation, but Christians will experience tribulation. And this tribulation in the New Testament is almost predominantly trouble experienced as a direct result of your relationship to Jesus Christ. But unlike the tribulation that comes on wicked man, this does not come as a judgment of God. It comes as the onslaught of Satan and a fallen world. Philippians 3.10 talks about Paul is summarizing Christian living and he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. He likens living as a Christian to sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Romans 8.17 says that if we want to be heirs with God, we will only become heirs with Christ when we suffer with him. Him. These are sufferings, brothers and sisters, are a direct result of the hostility of fallen man who are energized by Satan, and they are, their hatred is aimed at God, but it is directed at you. Jesus has been teaching us this since chapter 15. That's been the backdrop since chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in chapter 16, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And so we see then that the scripture teaches us that tribulation is the lot of all mankind. First, the wicked, because of their rebellion against God and as a judgment, but also to the Christian, to the faithful, as a direct result of the hostility of this fallen world against its creator. The apostles talked about this often. In Acts chapter 4, they, they talked about regularly how that they were preparing the churches, how that they were to prepare for suffering for the cause of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul said to them, he says, For when we were with you, get that, think about that, when I was with you. What was the theme of your preaching, Paul? What was it that you were telling the Thessalonian church We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And as Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know I'm being quite lengthy this morning in my introduction, but just hold on with me for a minute, okay? Notice the contrast in that. While well, it is the common experience of everyone to have trouble, the trouble that we as Christians endure is not like the trouble of this world. God gives us grace to endure our troubles. You see, as, as Christians, we do not endure trouble and hostility. The, the hostility we receive is not from the hand of God in the sense of judgment on, on us, all of that fell on Christ. Our hostility is due to our love and a following Jesus. God gives us grace to endure our troubles, and He promises to give retribution to whoever troubles us and, and for His sake. But note with me, as believers, we will never experience the, the kind of tribulation that the world experiences. Because of what Christ has done for us, He has forgiven us of our sins and made us right with Him, we can never say that we will experience the judgment of God like the unbelievers of this world. In fact, the scripture refers to our trouble as light and momentary. And that is not worthy of comparing to what God will, will, we will, we will receive when we are with Him in heaven. It is not worthy of comparing with the glory. Our afflictions are real and true, but they are light and momentary. But the unbelieving world's afflictions are great. They are heavy. And they are everlasting for those who are unpenitent and are not saved. You see, there's a distinct difference between the tribulation of the world and the tribulation of the Christian. But in all of these things, and here's the point this morning... The scriptures exhort us that we are to have the right attitude and the right mindset, even preparing going into difficulty. You see, we're not to expect that living as a Christian will be free from tribulation, but instead we are to recognize that it will exist, we see why it exists, and we are to give ourselves to the truths of God's word in order to prepare our minds and hearts to endure it with joy and patience. Paul told the Ephesian church this. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. It's for your glory. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you know that we're destined for this. It's God's predetermined plan that we endure suffering for his sake. And Jesus here gives us a very similar exhortation. He says, take heart. And he gives us the reason why we can take heart this morning. Why can we endure hostility, opposition, ostracization? I even spoke with a a fellow Christian this very week who's being ostracized from his, his entire family. And his own beloved ones are separating themselves from him because he's seeking to follow the will of Christ in his life. How is it that you can bear up under that kind of difficulty? Jesus here has an answer for you. Jesus' method of you dealing with these difficulties is not to try to figure out all that God is doing on the earth, but to fix your heart on the heavenly realities, on the spiritual truths, specifically the work of Christ on the cross. I have overcome the world. That's how you endure difficulty. You recall and remember that what Christ has done for you supersedes and overshadows the present age and the difficulties. And if holding on to that by faith, waiting for the return of Christ when all these things will be made right. So he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. He, starts the, he ends this sermon like he started it. He began in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he ends it the same way. Take heart. It means trust me. Have courage. Believe in me. Because I've overcome the world. What I am doing in the earth right now what, what is happening right now supersedes all of these, these trivial things that are happening to you. And you can have courage because of what's going on. You see, as Christians, you and I can endure whatever difficulties God may appoint for us when we, we by faith, fix our minds and hearts on spiritual realities and not earthly realities. In the moment of our difficulty, what are we fi- We're fixed right on the difficulty, the pain. I want this to cease. But Christ shows us that there's a better way, trusting in Him, fixing our eyes on Him. I have three points I want you to see with me from this text this morning. I want you to see with me first the hour that has come. Secondly, we're going to consider the danger of self-confidence. And thirdly, the command to trust. Are you with me this morning? Say amen. First off, the hour that had come. Verse 25, Jesus begins speaking about a day and an hour. That is not literal in the sense of a a real 60-minute period or a real 24-hour session. He's using that somewhat figuratively. I know that's ironic in, in light of what he's saying. But he's using that somewhat figuratively to refer to a period of time in general that, would ha- that began after his resurrection and has continued until this day. In that day. What day? The day of my accomplishments. The day of what I accomplished on the cross. So that hour has come. he says. And when he talks about this, he says the hour is coming. And then he told them at the, in verse 32, speaking about this, and he says it, it is already here. And so at that moment, the cross was the imminent future for them. It was about to take place, and it was here. We see here that Jesus speaks about the time of his death, resurrection, and ascension, and gives us two features of that that are meant to bring us to rejoicing. If we're to consider what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, it should cause us to be thankful and to rejoice over what Christ has done for us. And again, he's summarizing most of the sermon already. He's already mentioned much of this already, but he's restating it and summarizing it. Now, note with me the first feature he mentions he talks about clarity clarity he says in verse 25 he says I've said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the father and that day you will ask in my name and I do not say that that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you and because you have loved me and that I believe that I come from God Jesus here talks about the result of his Ascension to the father again and the coming of the spirit and specifically he says you will I will speak to you plainly that word plainly there means openness it has the idea of of unambiguously clearly and perceivably and you'll understand it exactly as it is. Jesus had used figures already. He talked about a woman giving birth. He spoke about a a vine and, and the branches. He used figures of speech all along, which at that time were difficult to understand. And these disciples had trouble with that. And yet He promised them, and He had already promised them, that after He accomplished His redemptive work on the cross, and He ascended to the Father, He would send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, a distinct feature would be, and a distinct blessing and result would be clarity. And brothers and sisters, we must not take it for granted that that is the day in which we live. Clarity. Clarity. The gospel has been made plain. The truth of God is knowable. What God is doing in the earth is not obscure any longer. It's not It's not hidden in figures and guesses like the Old Testament prophets who when they predicted about the sufferings of Christ knew degrees and aspects of what God was doing in the earth but the full revelation of it was still hidden from their sight. God has now, as if it were, tore back the veil and showed you the complete revelation of what He's doing in the earth. And you and I have the particular... Their privilege of knowing God, of knowing what He's doing in the earth, and of understanding His will and ways and walking in them to a greater degree and clarity that has not been known. Are you not thankful today that you're not walking around with, a, 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 we, though we walk by faith and not by sight, and we do not have all knowledge, God has clearly revealed in all that He desires for you. This may not strike you, brothers and sisters, but go back. If you were to sit and talk with Peter and Paul at, or, or Peter and John and the rest of the apostles at this time, they would have been envious of the days in which we, we live. And they did move into that. But at that point, they lived in a degree of obscurity. The cross was, was not where they were thinking. You and I live in days of clarity. I think this is a helpful. Helpful truth to exhort us because we're often assailed and we're often conflicted in our minds about all the differences of opinion on the truth of God's Word. Everybody's got an interpretation, everybody has an opinion, everybody thinks this and everybody thinks that. And well, it, it, it carries the idea that there's nothing certain, there's nothing true, and there's nothing knowable. But the opposite is true God's Word cannot be more clearer. And if you and I would apply ourselves, we can only but grow in the knowledge of Christ. It's not obscure. There are not many interpretations to what God is doing in the earth. There's only one interpretation. There's only one right way. God is doing what He's doing. He said what He said. And you and I can, apply through applied discipline and study and, and prayer, arrive at whatever the truth of God's Word is and arrive at a right interpretation, and only by the Holy Spirit. We live in a day marked by clarity, and we're not to be dissuaded or to be discouraged by however many opinions there are there's one god there's one way there's one truth, and there's one scriptures so get in it and study John sixteen verse twelve earlier in the passage he he had already told them this he says when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come jesus had promised them that the spirit would come and he would teach them all into all truth and it is the current possession of the church God's church has the Holy Spirit, and He is with us, teaching us, and guiding us. As we walk in humility and in repentance and seeking to obey His will and ways, He will guide us into all truth. You see, we live in a day marked by clarity. Now, here's the point. That did not happen until Christ died on the cross. It is the direct result of what Christ did for you hanging and suffering on the tree, that now you can know the truth of Christ. In that day, I won't speak to you in figures of speech anymore, but I will speak plainly. Are you walking with the Lord in the light of His Word, knowing Him, growing in your truth with Him? your understanding of Him. Don't use vain excuses to say, well, I just can't know that Bible. God's not a liar. You can know Him. Secondly, one of the results of Christ's death on the cross was that it produced an intimacy and affection with God the Father Himself. Notice what it says. In that day, you will ask in my name. And my name means on my authority and on my account. You will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is a reflection or an explanation of intimacy and affection. Not merely of of Jesus, but of God the Father himself. This is the result of what Christ had done on the cross for us. So that now, as a result of what Christ did for you, God the Father himself has a deep intimacy and affection for you. What he's talking about here is not that Jesus is not going to pray for us and intercede for us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. He stands at the right hand of of God the Father as our high priest and, and lives and intercedes for us. But what he means by this is that there is a direct access that comes as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. Remember, it's not that day yet. That day has not come. The cross... The cross is, is imminent, but it hasn't happened yet. And so he says, when that happens, in that day, after I have made sacrifice for your sins, the, he says, I, he says you'll, you'll be able to go to the Father yourself. What this tells us, brothers and sisters, is that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is so satisfying that now there is no hesitancy. When you sin and you fail in the sight of God and, and, you, and you fall short of God's glory, if you're saved, if you're part of God's kingdom, there's no hesitation. There's no, there's no re-sacrifice to get you right with the Lord. It's not like, okay, now, now God, uh, we, 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 Jesus has, doesn't have to go to the Father and try to explain to him why he needs to receive you again. There's no, there's no remediating this thing. There's no, uh, let, let's, let's renegotiate and consider whether or not we can, we can adopt this person, they, even though they failed me so many times. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God the Father is so completely satisfied with that and so satiated in His wrath that now He Himself loves you. He, he cares for you intimately. You are on His mind and He has deep affection for all of those who are His people this is the result of what Christ has done on the cross. You were formerly God's enemy, but now he loves you. Now, it's not meant by this that God that we that God only loves us in response to our love for him. But it does say that, doesn't it? It does say God God's love for us is 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 reciprocal, in a sense, of his, our love for Him. And we'll get to that in just a minute, but note with me that you have to compare this with other Scriptures. If we take this in the context and the broad view of, of other Scriptures, we understand a, a different angle. Not that God only loves those people who love Him, but rather that God's love is a, it's, it's a cycle of love or a circle of love. It's a, it's a deep and intimate relationship that acts as any relationship. It's, it's cyclical. I mean, this is a very petty illustration, but take it in mind to get the point. You love your wife, and you began loving your wife or your spouse a long time ago, but there are times and, and seasons where your spouse becomes even more precious to you. Maybe they, they do things in your, for you or, or especially for you that just animates and grows your affection for them. I love my wife. She did so-and-so for me this day, and man, that just makes me love her even more. And likewise, brothers and sisters, though our actions and our deeds do not initiate God's love for us, they do do strengthen that affection and cause it to grow. He says He loves you, for the Father Himself loves you. 1 John 4.10 says, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God God initiates love to us in sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But we reciprocate that love when we walk in obedience to His will and His ways. Remember He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And as we walk in obedience to His will and His ways, there's this cycle of love where we experience the affection of God for our lives and we likewise grow in our affection to Him. How does he say, why does he say he loves us? Well, he gives us two reasons. One, because we love Christ. And two, because we have received the work of the Father in sending Christ his Son and believed that he is God and that he is the propitiation for our sins. We've, we've accepted the testimony of God the Father who sent His son and we, God the Father says, when people do that, when they, when they love His son and when they believe in him, it creates an, a, a, a deep affection in his heart for them. though it doesn't and it begin there. It, 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 Jesus, God is so animated and so enamored with his son that he loves everyone who loves his son such that you cannot say you have a right relationship with God and not be in right relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so He shows us here. This is the hour that's come. These are the results of His death on the cross. A mutual circle of love and affection with God the Father, an intimate relationship that we can cultivate and grow in, as well as... Clarity in the truth of God's word. Let the church be thankful this morning. Let us not go away from this place with dry hearts and and unthankful lips. But instead say, thank you, Lord, for what Christ has done for me. Secondly, real quickly, I want you to see with me the danger of self-confidence. After Jesus was finished saying these things, in verse 29... The disciples have a response. And in short, their response is an expression of faith in the Lord. And I I don't think we should be judgmental about that. I think this is genuine. I think they were sincere in their faith. And yet, we'll see in the text here that it also was mixed not only with faith, but a degree of self-confidence of their own knowledge and their own apprehension of knowledge. He says, ah, now... We know that you speak plainly and not using figures of speech. Ah, we get it. We understand. We know what you mean now, Lord. Now, we know that you know all things. And you don't need us to question you about anything. Listen to this. And this is why we believe. We are those who believe, Lord. We believe that you came from God. I think while it is a genuine expression of faith, it's also a degree of deception and self-confidence on their part. Because notice what Jesus says next. Do you now believe? Really? Are you really believing? The hour is coming when every one of you are about to betray me. You're about to throw up your hands and you're about to run. And I'm going to be by myself. Not a one of you will be left. You see, this is the danger of self-confidence. It is thinking that we have arrived at a place in which we'll never sin. We fully get it. We're never in danger of misunderstanding or falling. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we too, like this, are often an intermixture of faith, genuine faith, with the degree of pride and Self-arrogance. Confidence in my knowledge. I know what I know. And I'm sure I got it all figured out. I could never go that way. I could never do that. We see an example once again, brothers and sisters, to not fall into the deception of self-confidence. Not even your faith is something you are to boast in and to be confident in. Your and my faith are like the legs of a chair. They can hold us up and carry us for a while, but if you put too much confidence and too much weight on them, they're going to give. I had that happen this week one of our chairs. It's been leaning for a while. I had to throw it out. It was, it was a good chair. Loved the chair, but one of the legs just had a little bit, little, little bit something off, and then lo and behold, what happens? One of my kids runs up and jumps on the chair, and well, you know the next. You know what happens next. The chair's gone now. That's what it's like putting confidence even in your faith. Your faith is feeble. Your faith is fickle. Your faith is here one day and gone tomorrow. It can be up and down. It can be all over the place. As Christians, brothers and sisters, we don't trust our faith. I'm not confident in my confidence. I know that I know that I know, and I can never be wrong. No, no. I'm not confident in my faith. I'm confident in my faith's object, in Christ. I'm trusting not in my ability to trust. I'm trusting in Christ. And he reminds us here, brothers, of the danger of self-confidence. These very men who says, we know, we believe that you are from God. He says, really? You all are about to leave. The good news is, brothers and sisters, God knows that about us. He knows that's what you're like. You don't have to pretend you don't have to act like that's not where you are at times and that's not where you do the father still loves you not because your faith is strong or because your faith isn't fickle but because of what jesus did for you and he receives you anyways and though god and though jesus there's an element of grief in this you do you believe really are you so self-deceived about yourself that you're about to leave Though there's an element of grief there, an obvious grief, it does not cause him to turn away from his apostles. He loved them and continued to love them. And we'll find in just a few minutes, He in and, and the next few weeks, he continued to pray for them to the Father. And such it is with us. Though you fail and though you fall, Christ remains faithful. That ought to make you want to get up and run around the building. That even make a Mennonite say amen. (laughs) I love my Mennonite friends. That's no slight. Don't take it that way. The danger of self confidence, and thirdly and finally, the command to trust. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That word take heart there is a command. It's not a suggestion or an encouragement, it's an order. Take heart. He describes the conditions of living as a Christian in the world. In me you will have peace. But in the world, you'll have tribulation. A tribulation, again, is anything, any, in a general sense, any oppressive state of mental, economic, or physical anxiety. The word literally means pressure. Whatever causes pressure, temptation, difficulty, anguish of mind... Distress of mind, distress in your circumstances. These are what the Bible calls tribulation. But specifically, he has in mind here the tribulation that comes as an intentional effort to, to be squeezed, to be caused to trouble. And it comes as the antagonism of this world, and specifically of Satan. And he says... In this world you will have tribulation. Well, what do we do about that? Do we seek to flee the world? and we go and live in, in isolated groups away from society so that we can somehow preserve ourselves? Do we, do we fight back in order to gain the upper hand so that we can be free from tribulation? No, no, Jesus says take heart. That's the way it's going to be. It's always going to be that way. Till Christ returns, this world's going to be full of tribulation. So instead of fighting and trying to make it different, or instead of trying to fleeing and escape all the difficulties of this life, Jesus says, "Take heart in me." You see, Christ here again, as he did in the beginning, exhorts us that instead of succumbing to fear and doubt and disbelief, we should trust in Christ. Believe in Him and rest in His victory on the cross over this world as the, as the means of dealing with any trouble. What do we do about this? We take heart. To take heart means to be confident. It means to have courage, some translations say. It means to be marked by confidence and of assurance. Some people describe it as being of good cheer. To be confident and to be hopeful and to maintain a bold bearing. This means, brothers and sisters, that your hearts are going to have to grasp the truths of the gospel in such a way that they give you they give they strengthen your backbones and they cause you to have a backbone like a saw log. And they put bone marrow into the into the inner sinews of your heart and your life so that you can have confidence. I know my Lord has conquered all on the cross. So I can endure whatever comes my way. Cheer up. Don't be afraid. I've won. The truth of what Christ has done, if we rightly understand it, should cause us to have great boldness. How did Jesus win? He won by dying. The world did the most they could possibly do to him. They they vented it all at him, and yet he still won the day. What more could they have done? And there's nothing more than they can do to us, but that we will also win in the end. If nothing else, the book of Revelation serves the singular point. To teach the church of Jesus Christ that we win. We win. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we should pray and ask God to examine our hearts today so that we, we ask God to strengthen us so that our hearts are full of courage and bold even in the midst of difficulty and tribulation. Charles Spurgeon told the illustration of a a general at Waterloo that one of the British lieutenants there in the early part of the day, he had left his forearm broken by a shot. He He was shot up. He couldn't therefore hold the reins in his hands, but he seized those reins with his mouth and fought on in the middle of the battle until shot broke the upper part of the arm to splinters. His arm had to be amputated, but within two days there was, with his arm still bleeding and the wound all raw, riding at the head of his division. Such valor and courage in the face of great difficulty. And this is what Spurgeon said. He says, Brave things have been done among the soldiers of our country. Oh, that such brave things were common among the armed men of the church militant. Would to God that in the teeth of suffering we could all persevere in living the holy life he bids us to live, and in zealously spreading abroad the glorious gospel which has saved our souls and which will save the souls of others. Take heart, I have overcome the world. All of God's people said, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the concluding words of our Lord and for his piercing clarity to exactly what we need. To not succumb to fear or be afraid at the possibility of intrusion, of difficulty but instead to look to what Christ has accomplished for us and to be of good cheer and of courage. Lord, I don't know who may be needing this today. Maybe there's someone here who is struggling, especially with opposition from loved ones or friends or just the general onslaughts of this world, and tempted, Lord, to give in, strengthen us, strengthen our hands and cause us, Father, that we can trust in you. I pray, Father, if there's someone here that does not know your gospel and everything I've been saying today is foreign to them, that you would open up their eyes and help them to see the beauty of Christ. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray.